You know, Swillian's deadly here. Just a little heads up that our best friends at Better Beer, partners of the Swillian, Core Lords Deluxe, are running a pretty massive treasure hunt that could make you over $46,000 richer. So during the month of July, Better Beer are giving you the chance to find two Bitcoins hidden in these specially marked cases of Better Beer Zero Carb cans all around Australia. Coinspot has hidden one inside a case of Zero Carb cans in BWS bottlers and another inside a case of Zero Carb cans at Dan Murphy's. So BWS and Dan Murphy's are the bottlers you want to go to to find these specially marked cartons. Each Bitcoin is valued at 46173 bucks and 4 cents as of June 29. So uh, that's what the Bitcoins are worth. You can't miss the cartons. They've got the little rocket ship, find the Bitcoin on the case, and um, they'll be in stores throughout July. And all you got to do is crack a tinny to see if you've won. The winning cans will give you the instructions on how to deem your prize. Good luck, mate. And um, as we always say here, you know, better be They're big contributors to Ain't That Swell. They keep our engines turning. More content, more programs, and just support the crew who support the potty, mate. It's that simple. Keeps us going. They could make you over $46,000 richer. That is pretty sick. You can get more details at betterbeer.com.au. Otherwise, see you at the BWS and Dan Murphy's. (laughs) Mad. Fantasies, pulsing swells, them who knows them, seldom tells. On distant reefs, on fatal shores, heroes and heroines from days of yore. They live on the fringes, pack mondo cones, orbs of mortal conequence, pulverizing bones, adventures and nightmares for young and old. These are the greatest stories never Welcome to the greatest stories never told in memory of an old mate of mine, Makala Jones. Obviously, this is in response to the awful news from Indonesia that Makala has passed away in a tragic accident in which he suffered a fin chop to the femoral artery in his leg and died of blood loss. In memory of Makala, today we're going to go on a pretty skits overland search mission with MJ and a few of his mates in search of what he thought might have been the next Bukit Peninsula. Now, the natural response, uh, particularly for those who knew MJ as I did, is one of grief and sadness in a situation like this. Uh, you know, I experienced a lot of kindness and generosity from MJ over the years. Uh, we live just a few minutes apart from each other in Bali, and I'd bump into him all the time. Uh, I first met him in my early 20s when I was living there permanently. 
You know, he was on my first trip to deserts, giving me tips and info on the wave, on travel, on hazards, etc. Uh, I can remember going to buy this this mental Glen Pen quad off him, but then he refused to accept the money off me and, and just gave it to me. And um, yeah, I, I have so many stories like this, just these little moments of kindness and generosity that, you know, I didn't know why he was being like that towards me. That, and to this day, I don't. Like, There's no real reason apart from the fact that that's the kind of guy he is. Uh, you know, he was a, a calm, happy guy, very... Uh, conscious of the good fortune he'd experienced in his life, uh, which we'll get to in a bit. Um, you know, I guess some of that good fortune was definitely manifest manifest in the house that he lived in, uh, which I visited several times in Chungu. It was a really beautiful place that he'd managed to create for his his wife and family. And uh, you know, I was over there not that long ago uh, to record a podcast and. Um, you know, typical Macala made me sit down and drink this cosmic purple smoothie with him uh, before we got stuck into it. And, uh, you know, the podcast itself was an interesting experience because I felt like the the, the chat that we had uh, and the person you kind of hear on the podcast is not really the, the MJ that I knew. Like, I think uh, not everyone is super comfortable with having their voice recorded and a mic plonked in front of them. And he's one of those people. And that's totally fair you know some people would rather uh, just keep a low profile and let their surfing do the talking and that's definitely the kind of guy that that he was uh, i also remember after that podcast he, he showed me these crazy blueprints of this like highfalutin catamaran uh, that was just built to to motor around indo or sail around indo in the world chasing more and more perfect waves so you know he, this was a guy who was getting after it right up until his passing. And so I think that, you know, in the midst of all the grief and sadness at the news of his passing, we should also be conscious of celebrating the positives. And for MJ, there were many, uh, as many as any surfer I've ever heard of. You know, this guy was Johnny on the spot during what might be the golden age of surf travel and performance. You know, when board technology, forecast technology and surfing performance or apex to give the best surfers in the world the chance to get properly deep in countless barely or totally unridden slabs uh, while also getting paid for it, don't forget that, and living with all the latest and greatest creature comforts uh, that modern society provided us with. You know, This was Makala's lot in life. He, he had a, a, as good a run as anyone I've ever heard of uh, You know, among the, the many surfing uh, adventures he enjoyed. He, he was one of the first people to surf Karamas, if you can believe, and, and had the run of the joint for a solid year or two before it blew out. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. Um, so, you know, it's important to, to just be really honest in moments like this and, and realize that a lot of what grief really is, is, is sadness for all the positive experiences that the departed won't get to have because of their premature passing. But that's a romantic view of what life is. We, we never include all the, the bullshit and challenges that any person will also be forced to live through. You know, the deaths of loved ones, sickness, injuries, stress, relationship breakdowns, etc., etc. So 
it's worth keeping that mind in mind if you find yourself getting too dark. Always consider both sides of life, the good and the bad, and consider that Makala had a fucking hell time on this planet. He lived the surfing life of several humans and got more uncrowded, perfect, and super deep barrels than maybe anyone else alive today. Like, I can't think of another person who's traveled through intergalactic wormholes deeper and more in control and just being able to sit back there and grok it all straight into his pineal. The guy was so fucking tubed. And he shared that energy and and shared that kindness and and generosity. Uh, You know, he was not one of those elite surfing wankers. He was a chiller. And for that, I will always admire and respect him. This episode of The Greatest Stories Never Told is, of course, dedicated to Makala Jones and his loved ones. Rest in peace. Rest in pits, my brother. Good morning, Java. It's a fine line between optimism and insanity when you're searching... We flitted both sides of it with two of modern Indonesia's most intrepid travellers, Jungle Travis Potter and Makala Jones. Are you going to smoke all those? asked an irritated Makala. It's 6am and his travel partner Travis Potter has us locked in a five-point U-turn on a village back road in central Java. We're trying to find a road down the ancient riverbed which contains what Makala believes might be the next Bukit Peninsula. Travis has one hand on the steering wheel, the other on the car's GPS, and breathes through his fifth cigarette of the morning. Yep, he replies out of the corner of his mouth. It's taken three days and 20 hours of driving just to get this far. The tip-off had come initially from an old sea captain who'd spotted the headland during a trip from one end of Java to the other. He never explored our spot, but with the help of Google Earth and Travis's extensive knowledge of the coastline, Makala was able to locate a way in overland. We've timed our trip to coincide with a four-day swell window and we're aiming to be back within a week. Surf exploration happens a lot quicker these days. With the benefits of long-range forecast models, satellite imagery, Indonesia's admirable Wi-Fi capabilities and Makala's luxurious Ford Discovery, we're doing what would have taken Peter Troy four months in a week. It's a lot safer and easier than back in the day, admits Travis. But then they weren't exactly surfing eight-foot apocalypse either. This isn't Travis or Makala's first rodeo. In the more than 10 years since Makala moved to Bali from Hawaii, he's become one of the region's most intrepid explorers. He learned the art of finding waves while travelling alongside Taylor Steele in the early part of his career. At a time when technology was revolutionising the search game, Makala was trekking around West Africa, the Arctic Circle and the Andamans with the filmmaker. Today he employs an exact science in scoping out waves, in which he'll take screenshots of any available footage or photos, then match it up against landmarks in the satellite image and try to find a potential access point. See those, he says, pointing to the couple of specks on the green blob that is our satellite image, They're human structures, so there should be at least some sort of road down there. So far, he's found waves off Sumatra, Papua New Guinea, and as far afield as Christmas Island. He was also among the first to surf Karamas. Yeah, that was something, he says. And recently blew off a family vacation to the Maldives that had been a year in the making to chase a swell back in Bali. 
It's looking like it might cost him his marriage at the moment. Yeah, I kind of shot myself in the foot on that one, he laments. His partner is Travis Potter, though that's hardly a worthy description of the man. Jungle Travis stands alone as the premier Indo-explorer of our generation. It was he and his buddies Brett Schwartz and Timmy Turner who camped out in West Java and discovered Apocalypse. Back then they were doing it old school, relying on short-range swell forecasts, meaning they'd often get horrendously skunked and spend up to a month at a time on the island waiting for waves. They'd break up their feral stints with missions to Jakarta and drawn-out benders in the city's infamous nightclub, Stadium. Travis has travelled the length of Indonesia, from Aceh to Sumba, and through West Papua to Papua New Guinea. He's perpetually broke, meaning he's forced to make the rugged journey overland to do his exploring, which he prefers anyway. It's more fun. There's more that can go wrong, he chuckles. Travis is prone to random bouts of laughter, his face turning circular with creases as his head bops up and down. His demeanour is passive, and he doesn't engage with the oscillating moods of his travel partners. He also walks with a mysterious limp, having almost died from cerebral malaria in Papua New Guinea, and it causes his shirt to hang off one shoulder. Such asymmetry equals madness in my books, and Travis's story is pretty fucking out there. He speaks fluent Bahasa with an uncanny Indonesian accent as a result of having spent a year as the only white guy in a city of 2 million in West Java. In the two decades of living and exploring Indonesia, he's compiled an eclectic list of friends and acquaintances, from illegal wildlife dealers to people smugglers to Cali weed plantation growers to illegal salvage divers and PNG security contractors. He's currently on his second Indonesian wife, his first having moved to Colorado, where she now works construction on the green card Travis Goddard. He tells me the story of how at birth, that wife was lost in a game of cards and put up for adoption. She was taken in by a wealthy, strictly Islamic family, rebelled, and was eventually placed in an Islamic rehab center, where, quote, they pretty much tortured her, says Travis. She became heavily politicized in her youth, and Travis remembers her slamming on the brakes in his car to get out and heckle a passing motorcade with a politician in it. A pretty sketchy move in a land that won't balk at murdering foreign journalists or 500,000 left-leaning members of a certain pre-Sahado political party in the 60s. She got me in lots of trouble, says Travis, as his face creases and his head bobs. The drive from Bali to Java was a hectic game of dodgem with trucks, buses, motorbikes, bicycles and horse-drawn carts. It didn't relent as we reached Java, and shortly after we were released by the ferry, we passed a truck that had flown off an embankment into the jungle, and another that decided to clean out its engine in the middle of the lane. It's also Ramadan, the month of fasting, and as I watched road workers slave over pickaxes on empty stomachs, I wondered how this religion ever took off here. It's only getting more extreme, generally, says Travis. By the time we got home, 12 people will have been shot dead in Arche after they were caught eating after sunrise. One of the people shot was a cop. But Java is also very diverse and subject to dozens of different regional laws and customs. I could only drag my fingers down the window as we passed the turnoff to the island of tight pussies, an outpost in Java home to a clan that teach their women to strengthen their vagina muscles 
from a young age. As we entered the bustling city of Malung in central Java, we were greeted by hours of gridlock. The town was a former holiday favourite among Dutch colonials, but today is choked with thousands of smoggy signs and stores stacked out front with the abominable food stocks that have led to Indonesia currently holding the unbelievable distinction of topping Asia in both the obesity stakes as well as that of stunted, malnourished children. As we made our way towards the coast, we skirted a volcano and Travis yelled out that we're passing Java's highest mountain on the left. Whoa, look at it, exclaims Makala. It looks like it's been photoshopped. My window was blocked out by boards and fishing rods, leaving me to dip once more into my industrial-sized bag of dates. When we arrived at the coast many hours later, we were a bay north of where we wanted to be. The swell was starting to show, and in front of us, an eight-foot wedging right was throwing up ramps big enough to send John John to the moon. It's not what we were after, and we were desperate to get the ski in the water to check the left around the corner. Bad news filters through. The other car towing the ski was almost dragged down a ravine by the trailer, and they've had to leave the ski at the very top of the decline. It's then that we spot a couple of Jarvos with a camcorder snooping around a river mouth. Travis runs over to them to ask whether they know the coastline very well and if they could direct us to a spot to launch the ski. They tell him they should know the coastline pretty well. They've just spent days scouring it for several locals that had been washed out to sea. We take their directions to a tourist beach, the next headland over. The light is fading when we arrive and in the distance, Bommy's cap at 10 foot plus. We launch the ski and Travis yells out, and points towards a glinting barrel way off in the distance. He and Makala fang out through a narrow reef pass and begin dodging bombies on their way to the string of lefts. In their haste, Makala cuts it too close to a bombie, and when a ten-footer suddenly drains off a hidden ledge, he buries the ski into the back of it, throwing both he and Travis from it. Fortunately, they drift away from the reef and are able to regather the craft, pressing on at a slower speed. When he returns an hour later, Makala's breathless. Book it. <laughs> Crossed with Mandaka. Eight foot. Slapping. Sand on the inside, he says. It's a wave, confirms Travis. Won't be for everyone, though. Kind of wish I brought my helmet, he says. We've spent so long in transit, I've been gutted of all expectation. From the get-go, this was always Makala's vision, and I was only here to document it. But now, with something more tangible, my imagination begins to run wild. That night, we camp in some shacks and make a plan to set out for the cove the following day. This is our last chance for electricity and running water, and the filmer Chris Bryan is desperate for a rinse. At the sound of running water, he bursts through the door of a room, and I hear him yell, You guys have running water? He returns a second later with eyes like dinner plates. That was fucked up, he says. He'd burst in on a local man enjoying one of the few indulgences that the sweltering evening in malarial middle Java allows. A nude cigarette in the dark under a cold shower. We slept that night, but only a few hours before setting out in the dark. The day dawned full of optimism and possibility, but after our fourth U-turn, the mood began to dip. They're the two rules. Never get directions off an Indo. And never stop if you hit one, says Travis, as we spin around yet again, searching for the road down the valley. When we do find it, 
we're surprised to find it's quite decent, likely because of an earlier mining exploration team. Yeah, we'll build you a road, then we'll kick you out and mine your village, quips Makala. It soon descends into the worst kind of goat track, and I'm forced to brace my arms off the car's interior to avoid getting knocked out. We cross a potentially crocodile-inhabited river. We cross a potentially crocodile-inhabited river, prompting Travis to recall the time he was asked if he could sell 400 of the endangered creatures. When we eventually emerge, it's to a crystalline creek emptying onto a white sand beach with a right wedge out the front and a sheer green and black cliff that juts out of the sand like a bookend. At the other end is the string of lefts, and to complete the picture, there is a father and son raking trevallion off bamboo rods in the corner. But Makala's calculations were a couple of degrees off. He thought the lefts would be offshore in the trades, and they're not. This is bad news. That clockwork seasonal wind Indonesia is so famous for is now our worst enemy. We've been skunked. There's two ways you can look at a situation like this. Our wave was surfable for only a couple of hours a day, but when combined with the tide, really only about 40 minutes. On the plus side, we were six dudes, Travis, myself and Makala, and a photographer and two filmers, in good health, camped out in paradise, with nothing to do but shoot the breeze while the breeze shot us. I imagined what it would be like to have a nice crisp green bud of marijuana to smoke. I even say it out loud since we're in the middle of nowhere and there's no chance of the policey stinging us. Oh, but yeah, I have some, says Makala's Indonesian filmer. I've been holding onto it the whole time, he says, producing some alfoil with a nugget in it. We crush it up, roll it up, smoke, and spend the next few hours drinking the idyllic beauty in with a squint and a dumb smile. Travis, like Jack Kerouac before him, lives for this shit. He settles in, setting up camp, building a fire pit, and sussing out the surroundings. He takes me for a spin on the jet ski around the surrounding headlands looking for waves and pointing out landslides on this most prehistoric of coastlines. This is a guy who, for his mother's first trip outside of America, brought her on, quote, a road-searching mission in Java. She loved it. We found a 15-foot bommie that was a proper setup, he bobs. I'm just waiting for the right guy to surf it. Dorian, maybe? At some point in the afternoon, Makala speaks up. The left. It's reeling, he says from the passenger seat of his car where he's been watching it silently for the past two hours. We decide to walk down and give it a go, but by the time we arrive, the wind has swung more unfavourable. And after catching a single wave each, we trudge the kilometre back to camp. Maybe tomorrow with the tide and the wind in the morning, he says. It's that kind of persistent optimism that lies at the heart of every great expedition. Push on long enough, and yes, most likely, it will get better. But how long you push, and at what point you decide to turn back, they are the questions that separate the meek from the mighty, and the mighty from the plain mad. Around the fire that night, talk turns to the potential of this region to erupt in giant splits and throw up mega tsunamis. There's been a recent quake, but the insistent thunder in the distance, Travis tells us, is more likely the popping of volcanoes. He says that he never goes anywhere without making a mental escape route, and says that for this spot, 
He'd head straight up the creek because there would be less chance of getting crushed by the trees when they came skiddling through on the tsunami. I wake several times in the night to the sound of the shore break, but come morning, I'm alive, and as I poke my head out, it's to a splendorous sight. Blue water, six feet of swell, and Makala hanging a shit in the shore break. Travis and I are first to roll the dice on the middle section of the reef, while Makala and Brad the photographer yell instructions from the ski. The swell direction is a little off, and there's an annoying reverb in the lineup from the cliff. But there's also some detonating kegs, and Travis manages to scoop into a few. The setup is thus. A bommy out the back, off the tip of the headland, an inside reef prone to wash-throughs, and a left reef in the middle of the two, which on the right direction could conceivably link up to the inside section and make for one very long, thick barrel. When the trades come up, we're forced to spend the day under a tree with a couple of fishermen. They bring us rice and eggs in what amounts to a rare smack of protein in our coffee and packet noodle diet. Time oozes by with not a worry in the world, and as the tide peaks, two bombs suddenly thunder along the inside section. It's the new push, yells Travis, and runs out to the lineup. But he sits there for 40 minutes without catching a wave and paddles back in. The decision is made to leave that afternoon, but with the swell still running, Travis and McCalla decide to push on. The photographer Brad agrees, but Chris the filmer isn't up for it. We're just punishing ourselves. Come on, let's just go back to Bali, he pleads, to a deathly silence. The party forges on, and soon we find a series of coves with no waves, but rather a spiritual retreat full of local crazies. We're told they've come here to be healed, having fallen ill when they tried to use black magic as a get-rich-quick scheme, only for it to backfire and leave them broke and schizophrenic. The search continues. Next, we find a brown water beach break that Chris likens to a poor man's Nicaragua or El Salvador and Travis to Porto Escondido. It strikes me then how obscure all these places are to the ordinary person and how outside of surfing, such regions are known for little else than drug cartels and some of the worst gang problems in the world. Yet no surfer would ever balk at going there. And now, with Canada, Iceland and Ireland on the map, you have to wonder what if anything can deter the intrepid surf traveller. Undernourished, sleep-deprived and severely skunked, it was with considerable joy that we received news a local family was going to cook us a rare meal. It's some whiskery local catfish, and Chris, having been smacked around by a bad case of prawn remorse on day one of the trip, watches it, like a child might watch eggplant before eating it for the first time. Is it good, he asks? Oh yeah, epic, we assure him. He yanks one off the plate, and he's midway through his second when Makala starts dropping some sobering facts about Indonesia's sewage disposal infrastructure, or lack thereof, and what this means for the diet of the bottom-feeding, river-dwelling catfish. You know what these guys eat, right? He asks. Chris looks up. Human shit. No one pays him much notice. And when Chris releases a noxious catfish burp ten minutes later on the beach, I still pay a little attention. 
It's only as the white puree begins to flow from his mouth moments later that I twig. We have a problem. Fuck this! I'm fucking sick! We gotta get the fuck out of here! He yells, smashing a roll of toilet paper into his head. Once the immediate hilarity wears off, I start to piece together this bout of food poisoning and grow suspicious of Chris. We'd all eaten the same catfish. And what was it that Chris was doing over there when he disappeared behind that tree minutes before the very public and well-timed vomit? Could he have faked the spew in a bid to back us into a corner of compassion and call an end to this journey? Or was it indeed some form of psychosomatic illness? You mean, like, too ill to chill, says Travis. Exactly, my friend. What if he were feigning the illness? Would that amount to some strange mutiny and give us grounds to abandon our partner behind to an uncertain fate in remote Java, though one which more than likely involved him being peppered by broken English from confused Javanese fishermen? Have we reached it? The line between optimism and insanity? A compadre has fallen ill on catfish, and now I'm now daring to question the veracity of it. Push on, search on, but to where? And for what? Yeah, whatever. I'm easy. What do you want to do, says Makala. Travis shrugs. The search is over. We're heading home. 